This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Amy Dunphy. Now, in the United States of America, it has been another week dominated largely by former President Donald Trump. He is facing four criminal trials, of course, unprecedented in the history of the United States and all the business that surrounds the various trials, consumes a lot of airtime, immediate time, and to some extent, Trump and his rise have been at the heart of this podcast since the very start in 2016, really. It's a pleasure now to welcome Niall Stanich, Associate Editor of The Hill and the White House columnist for The Hill to talk about the latest developments. Niall, Trump has consumed our time but there is no way around it, is there? And this week, for example, the Proud Boys, four of them were sentenced. The leader of the Proud Boys, who wasn't in Washington on January the 6th, received a prison sentence of 22 years, which shows the gravity that the courts regard this and the judges regard it, that this sort of reality TV show that Trump is putting on has real consequences. In On January 6th, people died, many people were injured, law enforcement and others, and the sentences being handed down and indeed being asked for by prosecutors are heavy. In a way, the sort of circus that Trump has turned America into has real consequences. They're heavy sentences. They certainly are, yes, and and grave offences, of course, as well. Enrique Tarrio is the now former leader of the Proud Boys, who you're referring to, yes. who got the 22-year sentence on Tuesday. Um, that was a consequence of his conviction on the charge, the most serious charge of seditious conspiracy, which in layperson's terms is conspiring to overthrow the state. And uh, obviously that is because of his role in organising the Proud Boys for um, violent behaviour on January the 6th, potential violent behaviour, which, of course, did indeed manifest itself. It is uh, the longest sentence that has been uh, 
given to anyone to date in relation to January the 6th. Uh, it's likely to remain that way, at least in the judgment of the New York Times, because they note that though many other people still have to face charges, there are no other charges uh, evident and imminent that would be so serious as this. Um, and as you say, a number of uh, Mr. Tarrio's uh, former confederates have also received very stiff sentences, three of them uh, last week, sentenced to between 10 and 17 years in prison, uh, and a separate person, Ethan Nordine, uh, also uh, one of uh, Mr. Tarrio's co-defendants, given 18 years. So, major sentences for major crimes there. Yes. Now, there is a connection between Donald Trump and the Proud Boys. In his debate, the presidential debate with Joe Biden, the mm. Proud Boys came up. And for most, for, for us, we didn't really under, quite understand it. And Trump was asked about the Proud Boys. Mm. Can you just tell us and tell our listeners what Trump's response was and why it seems so sinister now? To, to briefly explain the context, this was a debate in September 2020 between, as you say, Joe Biden, then a candidate, and then President Trump. And Trump was called upon to uh, condemn or rebut right-wing extremists. He, there was some crosstalk. He contended that there were more extremists on the left. And then he asked to give me a name for who he should condemn. And Joe Biden said, Proud Boys, to which Trump responded, Proud Boys stand back and stand by. And in the context in which Trump would uh, go on to raise questions even before the election about the uh, legitimacy of that election, yes. that comment, stand back and stand by, was perceived as a call to be ready yes. to inject themselves into any dispute that would follow a Trump loss in the 2020 election. As all your listeners know, that is more or less exactly what happened, and that's why that comment has become so uh, emblematic of the broader link uh, between Trump's incendiary rhetoric and actual acts of insurrection or of violence. Yes, and it, it goes to the suggestion that there's a degree of premeditation Mm. on Trump's part, that if he doesn't win the election and he was the sitting, he was the incumbent, he was the president, if he didn't win, it would be a fix. Mm. And at that point, the Proud Boys who were standing back mm. should stand by where they needed. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in the wake of January the 6th, Eamon, I don't mean to take us down a tangent here, but in the wake of January the 6th, I wrote an unusual personal piece for me comparing Trump to Ian Paisley in the North. Yes. And, you know, while Trump was not quite gathering people to wave gun licenses on hillsides, as Paisley infamously did on one occasion, I do think there's a similarity in the, not just in the sense of demagoguery, but in the sense of inciting violence and then disclaiming any responsibility for that violence. And so Trump's comments to the likes of the Proud Boys, coupled with his refusal to accept the legitimacy of the election, coupled with a long, long history of bellicose rhetoric, 
pretty clearly set the scene for what happened on January the 6th. And that degree of militancy on his part um, had consequences. And he has, I think, subsequently tried to wriggle out of those consequences or disclaim them, much as Paisley did in his day in the North. And, uh, you know, people can make their own judgments about that, but I would argue that the record in both cases is uh, pretty incriminating. Yes, and his vice president during his term of office, Mike Pence, was kind of disregarded, if not to some extent pilloried or, or laughed at, for being a dummy and just nodding. It has emerged in the recent revelations about what was going on, because after all, Pence was the vice president. He was the person who had to certify the votes counting on January 6th and to certify it at all was well with the Electoral College votes and that Joe Biden was indeed the elected president of the United States. And he did it. But the degree to which he was put under pressure persistently for quite some time by the president and his sort of staunch defense of the Constitution, he has expressed that now. He's articulated what was happening to him. That's a pretty powerful case, is it not, to show that Trump really was trying to engineer a coup. So it, Mike Pence has a very powerful story to tell, and whether people care for Mike Pence's personal politics or not, I would argue that the judgment of history, as far as January the 6th is concerned, yes. will be very kind to Pence, because he stood up in literal physical danger and followed the Constitution and discharged his duties, despite enormous pressure on him from Trump. Uh, not to do so, and to uh, basically find some loophole to avoid certifying the election results. Now, to your point about it being a powerful argument, uh, I would think it being as objective as possible, I would agree, yes, it is. I would also note that the Republican electorate doesn't judge it to be so. And Mr. Pence, as you know, is seeking the Republican yes. nomination and has made very, very little headway in that respect. Um, despite his conservative beliefs, despite his uh, roots in the sort of Christian evangelical movement, he's polling at a very, very low level. Not only is he polling at a low level, but among Republican voters, his unfavorable numbers are higher than almost any other frontline candidate. That, again, presumed to be a consequence of him not doing Trump's bidding on January the 6th. Now, I have a whole list of things that I want to ask you, Niall, and it's only just occurred to me at this instant to ask you this question. Mm. What do you make of Trump? And you've been, <laughs> no, I don't mean that. It, I, don't, <laughs> I know you're a reporter, a great reporter, and what personal feelings are supposed to be left out of it. Mm. But what do you and your colleagues think of Trump? Is that a fair question or not? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a completely fair because question. It's hard for us, you know, knowing how powerful and important to our lives the United States of America is, mm. particularly in the changed world order that it seems to me was ushered in when Putin invaded Ukraine and China invading Taiwan maybe next. 
The world order has changed. Mm. This is the man that's changed it, this former reality TV spiv. Mm. Yeah. I think that there are a couple of ways of, of coming at that whole question. It's a huge question. I, If you look at Donald Trump's whole career and his public pronouncements, it's quite difficult to make the argument that he has any real political convictions at all. He yes. was at one point, for example, pro-choice on the abortion question, pro-national uh, health care in the U.S., which, of course, we still don't have, etc. Um, he is sometimes underestimated in the sense of cunning. And I think he realized there was a gap in the market yes. for the kind of figure that he became, which is a angry populist uh, who would say the things that other people were not saying in the Republican Party and that that would um, propel him forward, which, as we all know, it did. Now, the the cunning part of it is important because one of the things that powered Trump's rise was, like all good demagogues, he identified legitimate problems and legitimate grievances, yes. basically to do with working class people in this country being uh, getting the short end of the stick in issues like globalization, uh, being sneered at to some extent by elites and all of those things. Hillary Clinton, for example, talking about the deplorables. Deplorables, basket of deplorables and yes. terms like that. Now, Trump seized on all of that the problem, his critics would say, and I would think they have a very strong case, is he doesn't actually do anything to resolve those problems. It is a much more uh, narcissistic or cultish thing. Vote for me, and in some unspecified way, I'll sort all this out, uh, which, you know, obviously he, he didn't really do in any significant way. Then you ally that with the fact that critics would just consider him even by political standards, unusually amoral, I think, or unscrupulous would be perhaps a better yes. word. So the Washington Post, for example, traced the lies that he had told and the untruths he had enunciated during his presidency. The, it, was, it was certainly a list that was well over 2,000. It may have been 3,000, I think, uh, of misleading statements, which he, he says with abandon. Uh, and then you have all the other stuff about sort of aggravating uh, racial and ethnic grievances, the, the famous issue of uh, neo-Nazi violence at Charlottesville, yes. and Trump referring to very fine people on both sides. Yes. Uh, you know, th those are the kind of things that we're talking about. Indeed. Now, we come to the present, the four criminal trials. But before we do that, just let me ask you about Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, Mm -hmm. Because taking all matters into account, the opinion polls can't really separate Mr. Trump, former President Trump, and Joe Biden, the, the incumbent at the moment, they can't be separated. Hunter Biden is what might be called a colorful figure. Mm. And he had a, he'd done a plea bargain deal with mm -hmm. a judge. In fact, with the Department of Justice, I think you do those deals. You'll correct me if I'm wrong on that. Now, that's fallen apart, and he is yeah. facing now serious charges again. 
Mm-hmm. And there is some suggestion. Trump has been using the phrase, the Biden crime family. There is some suggestion that Joe Biden may have been a beneficiary of Hunter Biden's payoffs, or there's also drug issues involved in that. What is the status of that now? Because there has, there has been a development this week, hasn't there? There, there has. I think that the Hunter Biden case can sometimes be a little tricky for people to follow, so I'll try to explain it as clearly as I can. As you noted, there was a plea deal that fell apart. Prosecutors this week have said that by the end of this month, they expect to seek an indictment of Hunter Biden on a gun charge. As far as we know, what this relates to is Hunter Biden buying a gun at the time that he was still uh, addicted to drugs. And to get a drug legally, you have to fill out a form. One of the things that it asks you is whether you're uh, taking illicit substances. And he said no, which is an offense. That is seemingly the basis upon which a charge will soon be made. Right. Separate from that, there is Hunter Biden's business dealings. Those are much shadier. I mean, the gun charge, I'm not defending his conduct, but it's a sort of personal drug-related thing, whatever. The business dealings are much shadier by their very nature, uh, including him for uh, several years getting payments of around $50,000 a month for advising a Ukrainian energy company despite having no notable expertise in that area. Now, the important thing is twofold. One is no direct wrongdoing on Joe Biden's part has as yet been proven. Having said that, there is some smoke around the area, like you and I have mentioned before about a, an email that refers to a cut for the big the big guy yes. uh, who is so far unidentified. And Republicans want in the very near future to launch an impeachment inquiry of President yes. Biden, which would give them more teeth to investigate Hunter's business dealings and to see if they can stand up an incriminating connection between those and Joe Biden. Yes, and is it, I mean, the two impeachments that Donald Trump has faced and and survived, of course, that put impeachment, as it were, on the menu. Mm. And Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the Congress, the majority leader, and the person third in line for the presidency, we must never forget, our Kevin, as Donald mm-hmm. regards him, my Kevin, actually, mm-hmm. is the phrase he used. They could actually trigger that, couldn't they? It's not this week's news or anything, but no. the kind of ease and enthusiasm with which Democrats impeached Donald Trump might uh, come back to haunt Joe Biden a bit. It certainly could, and there's a lot of uh, Republicans pushing for that. Um, and you know, many of those people are, of course, on the pro-Trump wing of the party. The one complication of, I mean, I think that an impeachment investigation will be launched and will be launched pretty soon. Right. That That is a stepping stone to an actual impeachment effort. And if the evidence remains broadly as it is at the moment, Biden might have a saving grace, which is there are 18 Republicans in the House of Representatives who represent districts that Biden carried in the 2020 election. Right. Therefore, those people would potentially be signing their own political death warrant to vote for impeachment unless, and that's, of course, an important unless, there is incriminating information discovered about Joe Biden 
which would change the whole landscape. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Now, to go back to... A fascinating figure in all of this, and that's Jack Smith. He is the prosecutor appointed by the Department of Justice to prosecute the January 6th matter against Donald Trump and also the Mar-a-Lago documents and classified material that was found there. There are four prosecutions. The other one, I'd just say as an example of a mess, it seems to me Georgia, where 19 people have been charged, including Donald Trump, it looks like that will take forever. But Jack Smith has only charged Donald Trump. There are six other people who were mentioned, but they have not been charged and they have not been named. Mm. Jack Smith, it is thought, is someone with a very good reputation as a prosecutor and someone whose integrity is unquestioned. He has brought a very slim case, but it's based on obstruction of justice, I think, and it can be done very quickly. The point I'm trying to make here is, even though Trump has election business to conduct, Jack Smith believes, and some people who've looked at this case and its developments this week, believe he will get his case into court before the election. Yeah, that's right. It is sometimes difficult to keep track of all the various dates uh, at which um, 
uh, during which Trump will be uh, potentially at least put on trial. Now, the Jack Smith case in relation to January the 6th is the the very slim one where only Trump is charged. The... uh, it is basically suggesting that uh, Trump used um, knowingly false claims in order to stoke January the 6th, and that includes, for example, organizing fraudulent slates of electors. Uh, but it is very much premised on the fact or on the belief that Trump knew his claims of election fraud were false. And yes. so we can expect the defense to be, no, he believed them to be true and Maybe he believed the people who told him that rather than the people who told him it was all nonsense. The obstruction of justice charge, and I know it's difficult to keep all these things untangled, the obstruction of justice case is Mar-a-Lago related, though that case is also being prosecuted by Jack Smith. Yes, and the, the point, I suppose, the larger point here is the prospect of Trump being found guilty and going to or being sentenced, mm-hmm. what would happen then in terms of the election? Would he campaign from prison uh-huh. or would he seek bail? <laughs> I know that he, if, he, if he wins and becomes president, he can instruct the Department of Justice, can he not, to throw the charges out. More or less, yes. I, I should have said in my previous answer that the federal case, Jack Smith's January the 6th case, a trial start date has been set for March the 4th yes. next year, the day before Super Tuesday. So Trump's team, it looks like, will try to push that back. But let's, for the sake of argument, say that they don't succeed in that and that he's placed on trial then. And let's also say, for the sake of argument, he's convicted. Uh, he would then face a, a sentence, obviously, Uh, But Trump's bet appears to be to keep things alive until the point, which would be January 2025, where he could be uh, taken office again as president of the United States. If, for example, a Trump appeal is still alive at that point, and he's elected, he could then say to the Department of Justice, I'm ordering you not to contest my appeal. Of course, that would cause massive uproar and a constitutional crisis and all the rest of it. But from what we know of Trump's personality, he's not necessarily opposed to that. And it is largely accepted by even legal observers who are critical of Trump that he has the legal power to do that. One very important point, Eamon, that I should make is that power pertains to federal cases only. It does not pertain to state cases, which is the Georgia case about election uh, malfeasance and a New York case relating to hush money payments to uh, Stormy Daniels. Right. Just a a final question, Niall, about the polls Mm. and what they're telling us about the mood of the American people right now. And, of course, there's 14 months to run until the election in 2024, and a lot of water has to flow under the bridge. What are the polls telling us now about Americans' view of the protagonists here? That 
it is effectively a dead heat if it is Trump versus Biden. Some of the polls in that respect are one point or two points this way or the other way. But uh, this far out from an election with polls that close, uh, it's essentially a 50-50 ball game. Now, interestingly, uh, we're speaking, Eamon, on Thursday, uh, Thursday afternoon, yes. US time. There was a new poll out this morning from CNN that tested several of the Republican candidates against Biden. And interestingly, Nikki Haley, the only woman in the race and the former governor of South Carolina, performed significantly better than anyone else, defeating Biden by, I think it was six points. I don't have it in front of me, but I think it was six points. Yeah, she was the former U.S. representative to the United yeah. Nations as well. That's right. And it is presumed that her appeal would be that she would be able to appeal to sort of suburban women and more moderate voters. Yes. Trump does turn off a lot of people, which is why a lot of Democrats think their best chance is running against Trump. Having said all that, you wouldn't be casting uh, or, or uh, you wouldn't be drawing a lot of comfort if you were a Democrat from these polls that show not only an effective dead heat between Trump and, uh, and Biden, but also an enormous majority of the American public very concerned about Joe Biden's age and the related question of his fitness for office for a second term. Okay, Niall, as always, you've told us a lot and... It's brilliant reporting, and we're very grateful to you. Indeed, that's Niall Stanage from The Hill, a very respected newspaper, Niall's associate editor. They're very respected because in a polarised state such as American media is in, The Hill attempts to be fair. We're grateful to Niall, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. 